Today's reading is Galatians, chapter 3, verses 19 through 29. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should, make, should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, welcome. Um, just a c- couple of quick reminders. Uh, one, beginning next week, uh, we are going to have a uh, morning Bible study. It used to be called the Theology Question and Answer, uh, but I know the word theology is a little intimidating, so we're going to just call it the MBS now, uh, Morning Bible Study. Uh, every morning at 10 o'clock uh, in the room right there, and uh, you'll see in your... Uh, bulletins and this little insert. Uh, we'll give you the information and the topics. Uh, the, the large topic is going to be about scripture, and so I hope you can all come to that during the season of Lent. Just for six Sundays, uh, we invite you to come and have a time of morning Bible study uh, before service. And then after service, uh, beginning next week, again, I want to just invite all of you to stay for an extra hour uh, for a time of Bible study and fellowship, as we will have during these six weeks a time of Lenten uh, FGs or fellowship groups. Uh, for those of you who are not a part of a regular small group during the week, this is an opportunity to, to be a part of one. Again, a punctuated ministry opportunity just for six weeks. Uh, I hope all of you can stay. We'll have lunch. We'll have uh, child care. Uh, we'll have fun. Um, we're going to do something not from the New City Catechism, so the, we'll, we'll be studying something very different uh, during those six weeks. And so, again, it's the season of Lent. And I hope you'll take advantage of this time um, to be a part of that. Uh, interestingly, this year, just to, it's one of those weird calendar things. This week, Wednesday, February 14th, is the beginning of Lent. Ash Wednesday is on Valentine's Day this year. And Easter Sunday this year is on April Fool's Day. It's just one of those weird little calendar things. And so from Valentine's Day to April Fool's, um, you know, I thought that, that, would make, that would make for a great sermon series, you know, but I'm not going to do that. Um, but I just thought it was kind of interesting the way the calendar worked out uh, this year. All right. Uh, for those of you who are new to our time here, we begin uh, every uh, sermon now um, reviewing the New City Catechism. And so we want to do that uh, again. And again, I want to just encourage you to lear- learn the songs, the songs I know, you know, I know it's kids' songs, but they will, they will help you to memorize 
uh, the catechism. So I want to encourage you to do that. All right, let's uh, review the catechism. Question one, what is our only hope in life and death? Question two, what is God? Question three, how many persons are there in God? Question four, how and why did God create us? Question five, what else did God create? Question six, how can we glorify God? Question seven, what does the law of God require? Question eight, what is the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments? Question 13. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Question 14. Did God create us unable to keep the law? Okay. Today, uh, question 15. Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you uh, for this day, and we thank you for your law. And though we cannot keep the law, uh, we know that you have a purpose for it for us. Uh, So help us to know what that means, to love your word and your law, and to discover how we might apply that to our daily living. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So in the reading today, in the letter to the Galatians, um, the Apostle Paul is writing in response to a group of Jewish Christians who were teaching that in order to become a Christian, uh, they wanted to have some pieces of the Jewish faith as a part of their becoming Christians, perhaps circumcision or some other Jewish religious rite. But Paul has been insisting throughout the letter that only faith in Jesus Christ is necessary and that it is by faith and faith alone that one is made righteous before God. And he gives the example of Abraham, who God counted as being righteous before he had done anything and not because of anything he had done. And so he argues from that that those who are the true heirs of Abraham are those who have faith, not those who are, you know, biologically connected to Abraham. The true heirs are those who have faith, because that's, that was the thing about Abraham. He had faith. So then Paul anticipates, if, if that's true, if faith is all that is necessary, if the promise that we're made to Abraham is all that's important, then why did God bother to make the law? If the law cannot give us the spirit, if the law cannot give us life... If we can add nothing to the covenant of promise that God made with Abraham, why did God make the law? Why did he give his people 
the law. Or as the catechism asks today, since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? What's the purpose of the law? If it adds nothing to our salvation, if it adds nothing to the promise that God had already made with Abraham. And so Paul answers this anticipated question with a very simple and direct answer. He says, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It's very clear here. The law was a temporary addition until the promised offspring, that is Jesus Christ, should come. God added the law 430 years later, he says, after the promise given to Abraham as a temporary measure because of transgressions. Because of transgressions. So what does that mean? Well, the Greek here for because of can mean one of two things. It can indicate either the goal or it can indicate the reason. So it could mean that the law was added because there were transgressions, because there were all these sins and so on, the law was given to bring order and to bring structure and punishments for people who were cheating and stealing and so on. So the law was given because of all this bad stuff that was going on. Or it could mean that the law was added for the purpose of showing transgressions. That is, for example, Paul writes in Romans 5.20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. And then in Romans 4.15 he writes, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. In other words, the law identifies sin. The law says this, this is wrong. Both meanings could be meant by Paul here, but I think in the context of his larger argument here, the emphasis, it seems to me, is that Paul says the law helps to identify sin because we are held captive and imprisoned by the law and under sin. Um, Chuck Swindell tells a story that I think illustrates this well. Uh, he tells about a time when he was in junior high, he was in uh, middle school, and he talks about how he had a paper route. Uh, some of you may not know what that is. In the old days, um, usually a kid would get on his bike or her bike, and you would have newspapers. And you would go house to house, and you would put a newspaper into each mailbox or you would throw it onto their lawn or, or something. like. I had one when I was in middle school, so I know, right? And um, my route had 50 houses, so it would take me, you know, I don't know, like an hour to bike about three miles my route uh, to deliver 50 newspapers to 50 homes. And some of the houses, they didn't care. Like, it was, you could just toss it onto the lawn, which was great. Uh, but some houses, they wanted you to put the newspaper inside the screen door or their front door, which was like, oh, because then you have to get off your bike, and, you know, it just took a lot longer. Some people had, like, long, long driveways from the road that you'd have to, you know, go in. Anyway, um, so Swindell says that uh, he had this uh, thing, and one day on his way home, he realized that if he cut across this person's yard, he could save himself a big part of the trip, right? That he could get home much earlier if he just, instead of going all the way around, he just cut across someone's lawn. Now, he knew that he probably shouldn't do that, uh, because he knew that, that, he knew that neighbor, uh, he knew that, you know, they took really good care of their lawn, um, but, you know, he was tired, it was late. I'm just going to do it this once. And so, so he biked across the lawn. And he said he felt, you know, he felt guilty. He knew that it was wrong, that it was sinful. But, but, but he did it. You know, he's, he's a kid. Next day, 
He comes around, and he's in the same spot again. And he's thinking, oh, you know, I shouldn't do it. But he does it again. And he said the second time, he felt a little less guilty. And so then the third day and the fourth day, he just kept cutting across the lawn, right? Because it saves him a trip. And he said after a couple weeks, he wasn't even really thinking about it anymore. And then after two weeks, as he was cutting across the lawn, there was a sign on the lawn. And the lawn sign said, keep off the grass, no bikes. And he writes this. He writes, everything but my name was on that sign. (laughs) But guess what he says? He decided to ignore the sign and bike across the lawn anyway. And by now, after two weeks, you know, there was a little path that he had worn down with his, uh, with his bike, right? And he says this, the sign identified my sin, which in turn intensified my guilt. But what is most interesting, the sign didn't stop me from going across the yard. As a matter of fact, it had a strange fascination. It somehow prodded me into further wrong. He felt worse, but he did it anyway. I think that's a very honest and, and you know, it's a very true uh, telling of, of, of how sin and, and, and the law uh, works in us. I have a very similar story uh, that I, have, I still struggle with. Um, and it's not a bike route anymore, but it's at the seminary library. Every time I go to the seminary library, uh, normally I like to work on the second floor of the library in one of two a small private rooms on the second floor. And I usually get to the library very early when it, the doors first open usually. And so I can pick any space in the whole library that I want. And I usually pick one of these two small rooms on the second floor. And I've joked with people that it's my office because I'm there, you know, like most days. And uh, from my office, I would make phone calls. Uh, I've had staff meetings there. I've done premarital counseling there. You know, I eat there. I, I have other meetings. I do, uh, you know, uh, virtual you know, video conferencing, um, and, you know, and I know I probably shouldn't do all that stuff because you know the rooms are not soundproof. Because sometimes when I'm not in the room and I'm outside and I see other people in those rooms and they're on the phone, like you, it's it's a little annoying. You know, it's this a library? Come on, let's be quiet, right? Um, about 18 months ago, I walk into the room and there's a sign on the door, and this is what the sign says: "This community space is designated for study." Conducting business meetings, virtual phone or face-to-face, tutorial counseling sessions, and other similar activities is not permitted. Everything but my name was on that sign. Did it stop me? No. (laughs) Did it intensify my guilt? Yes. So I try to be a little more quiet when I'm having a meeting in there. Right? That's, that's what the law does. It, it diagnoses our sin, but it does not have curative powers. It doesn't give me the power to escape. Uh, so it's not that there was no sin before there was the law, but it's that the law identifies that sin, and it makes it, makes it very, very clear. The law served as a sign of God's chosen people, but Paul says it was temporary, and for that time until until faith would come and be revealed in the true offspring of Abraham, the child of faith, the child of promise, 
Jesus Christ. So it was given to us, it was given to the people of God as a pointer, as a sign of God's promise. It was not intended to bring salvation. That's what Paul says. And in fact, he goes on to say, it was given to us as a guardian until Christ came. This word guardian is interesting. In Paul's day, there were these people called guardians, um, and the word there literally means child leader or child guide, one who leads um, a child. And these guardians were typically uh, slaves, sometimes uh, freedmen, but they're typically slaves of wealthy uh, or well-to-do Roman families who would be in charge of their children, typically sons. And these guardians were, you know, part-time babysitter, part-time chauffeur, part-time, you know, bodyguard. They would take them back and forth from school. They would make sure, you know, they don't get into trouble. Um, Sometimes they provided some some mentoring and so on. And they were a constant presence in the lives of these kids from about the age of seven until their late adolescence. So these guardians, you know, kind of hovered, you know, this was... You know, before helicoptering parents, they had these guardians that were just, just watching over them to make sure that they would make good decisions and to protect them from harm. Um, a constant presence, and they had authority over their charge. And these guardians played a very important role uh, in many ways in shaping uh, the um, sort of the, the moral outlook and the, and the way they thought about the world and so on of, of these kids. Um, think of it today, something like, I don't know, it's not quite the same, but like, like a nanny that people have, or an, an all pair or something. Someone who's kind of a, a constant presence, uh, who, you know, they're hired to do this, this task of, of protection and guidance. Um, they're useful, they were needful in fact. But once the child became an adult, once the child got to a certain age and was mature enough, they were no longer needed. Because they can then make decisions on their own, and as much as they may have loved their guardian, they didn't need them anymore. And Paul says, that's the law. The law is just like that. It's like this temporary guardian that you need and is helpful and you can love, but it's for a time. It's just a very temporary situation until you've matured or until you've come to age. And as a result of Christ's coming, Paul says, we are no longer under the law or under the guardian But it is through faith and through the waters of baptism now that we are made children of God, that our status has changed and we no longer need the law, and that in our new identity as the sons and daughters of God, it overrides all other previous identity markers that separated us, male, female, uh, Jew, Gentile, slave, and free. We are one. Um, Just as we were under sin, and separated, we are now united and under Christ and made one through faith. Um, so that's, that's what Paul says here. You know, I've been thinking about just the law and, and sin and, um, you know, we've been talking about the sort of theme uh, about the fall and so on f- for several weeks now. And so I want to just make a, a reflection with you, something I've been thinking about for a while now, um, regarding the purpose of the law, right? What's the purpose of the law? And historically, the church has come up with a number of different reasons. Um, But I want to share something that uh, C.S. Lewis writes and kind of work and think about um, the way we might want to think about the law for us today. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity offers this illustration about the law and about morality. He says that we can think of human beings as broken machines. And then he goes on to say, 
human beings, you know, think of yourself and the human race as a fleet of sailing ships. A fleet of sailing ships that are, you know, in formation. And he says this, the voyage will be a success only if, in the first place, the ships do not collide with one another and get in another's way. And secondly, if each ship is seaworthy and has our engines in good order. And he says, like, you can't have one without the other, right? If, if your ship is broken down, the engine's not working, you're probably going to collide into the other ships because you can't maintain, you know, the path, right? Or if the ships keep, like, crashing into each other, no matter how good a ship you have, you're going to get damaged, right? So he, he argues there's, there's two reasons for having the law or morality, right? We want to travel in formation so we don't bang into each other, right? This is how can we get along with one another? And we want a set of laws so that our own ship, our own bodies, our own lives, we might keep ordered and have integrity and be consistent and so on, right? And human societies are primarily concerned with this first use of the law. How can members of society get along with one another without colliding? We need laws for that. But as Lewis points out, we need more than that. We need people themselves to be good because even if you have all the best laws in place, you know that if you are evil, you will find a way to break the law or to game the system. So no matter how good the law is, unless the people who are trying to follow the law have some motivation or, or something working to do that, it's not going to work. It does you no good to have great laws if the people are not going to care about that. So the first use of the law is concerned, Lewis says, with fair play and harmony between individuals. And I think this is something we can call the, the social dimension of the law, or what I'm going to call fellowship. That's the first ship, fellowship. The second use of the law is what he calls tidying up or harmonizing the things inside each individual. And so this would be the, the internal dimensions of, of, our, you know, of ourselves, and I'm going to call this discipleship. So there are these two basic uses of the law. Fellowship, how do we get along with others? And discipleship, how can I order my own life? How can I, you know, make myself, you know, just be a better person? Something like that. And as I said, you know, society is primarily interested in that first use, the question of fellowship. And to some degree, the second question of discipleship, right? Self-help books, like here's how you can have a happy life. Here's how you can be successful and so on. But Lewis says, there is one thing we have not yet taken into account. We have not asked where the fleet is trying to get to. However well the fleet sailed, its voyage would be a failure if it were meant to reach New York City, but ended up in Calcutta. Right? So yeah, you want to travel together in good formation, not banging each other. You want your ship to be in you know, top ship shape, right? But you want to get to where you're going, right? Just, just the fact that you're a ship and you're on the ocean, it, it means you're trying to get somewhere, right? So if you, if you don't get to your destination and you're just kind of like going in circles, well, even if you're in perfect formation and your ship is in great shape, if you're just going in circles, well, what, what's the point of that? What is the purpose of the law? Is it just to organize society and for me to organize my own life? And Lewis says, no, it's not. There's a larger question that must be answered. Where are we headed? 
That is, what are we made for? Are we just floating, you know, just kind of floating around the ocean, just enjoying the scenery? Or should the fleet be headed somewhere? Is it headed somewhere? And this is uh, what theologians call the teleological dimension. That is, what's the goal? What's our ultimate aim in being a part of this? Right? And, and this is the word, and for this, I would say the third ship is worship. So we not only need fellowship to kind of get along with people, not only discipleship to kind of order our own selves, but the ultimate purpose, right? What's the reason for traveling? And I would say that is, for us, the answer is worship. And I think this is where, you know, the, the Christian understanding of life and what the world suggests differs and where I think the world runs into trouble. Because nations and cultures and communities, they're trying to build fine ships and fine plans for traveling together without any larger reason for doing that. Now, I know for some people that that it's okay. That it's okay. But for me, the absurdity of this, you know, was pointed out 100 years ago by people like Nietzsche and others, right? This was the problem that um, led them to a form of philosophy like like nihilism and what our i think our modern culture uh, faces today why bother living morally why travel with other ships nicely why not just crash into everybody why keep my ship in good shape if the if all we're going to do is just kind of float around the ocean aimlessly for me I, i find no compelling answer given by our culture at best, the argument is made that life is precious because it is fleeting. And so we ought to find beauty and whatever meaning that we can make ourselves and enjoy life to the fullest. Right? So there, there is no objective or absolute or outside meaning that is given to us. But we have to find meaning. We can create meaning. And that meaning is enough. You know, the other night uh, in our fellowship group in our FG, we talked about this a little bit. And, you know, I know for some people that that is enough. For some people, it's enough to kind of be part of a fleet, be in good shape, and enjoy the scenery. You know, maybe you get to see some whales and dolphins. You get to do some fishing. And for some people, that that is enough. I, I know that. For some people, that is enough. People are able to enjoy this life for what it is without anything else, to live admirably very moral, you know, exemplary lives in many cases, they're at peace or have come to accept and to believe that death and what I would say the utter and absolute extinction of any consciousness as a part of life, and they're somehow okay with that. That this is all there is, and they can still find joy and meaning that they've created for themselves. Um, but I'm not. You know, I've never been. And maybe this is just, I can't be the only one who's uncomfortable with that thought. As I said, I know some people are okay with it. Um, but for me, if I were to really believe that this physical world that we see and, and so on, that th- this is all that there is, if I were absolutely convinced of that, I really think I would, I would go insane with, with terror and just, um, I mean, it, it would really 
lead me off the cliff. Um, now, I don't want to suggest the causality here, but it seems to me there, there is at least some correlation between the, the rise of you know, depression and uh, suicide and all other kinds of uh, mental uh, health issues that we're experiencing as a country with the rise in this sort of this acceptance, this narrative of uh, a, a materialistic atheism that is beginning to dominate our, our cultural narrative. Um, and for me, this, this is, you know, it just, it reminds me all the way back to the, the myth of uh, Sisyphus, right? Remember the story in the in mythology where uh, Sisyphus had to roll this stone up this mountain as punishment, and every time he got near the top, the stone would roll back, and he would have to roll it back up again. And it, this, this is all it was. This is all it was. And we, we look at that and go, wow, that's, that's, that's terrible, right? You, you never get to the top. You never finish your goal. And, like, why are you, why are you doing this? Like, why don't you just quit? Um, that, that's the story of humanity. We look at that and we think that's ridiculous, and yet that's what life is without some ultimate purpose. Enjoy the work of rolling your rock. Uh, you know, you're getting good exercise. There are beautiful flowers on your way up and down. But, but that's it. There's no, there's no goal other than just this, this routine of, of rolling the stone. Um, and I think that question makes people wonder, like, is that all there is? Um, the well-known atheist philosopher Anthony Flew um, at the end of his life, he found that the atheistic materialism that he espoused for his entire life was too simplistic to believe, and he came to a position of theism. Not, not a Christian position, but to theism. That He said, you know, there, maybe there is something more. Uh, he and others have found that when you consider not just death and the reality of death, but when you think about things like love and consciousness and beauty and even the very need to want or to have meaning, they suggest, you know, it doesn't prove anything, but it points us toward maybe there is something more. The writer A.N. Wilson, who uh, some people thought was going to be the next C.S. Lewis, he disappointed many people, including me, uh, when he became an atheist uh, at the age of 38. Um, I remember reading the article uh, when I was in school and just like, oh, no. Like, it was like, oh, you know, he was going to be so good, and then now he just took a turn. Um, but then, about 20 years later, 20 years later, um, he rejected being what he called, he, he identified himself as a born-again atheist. He rejected that, and he came back, not just to faith, but to the Christian faith. And he wrote this really uh, wonderful testimony, which he entitled, Why I Believe Again. And I want, I want to read you a piece of that, Why I Believe Again. He writes, The existence of language is one of the many phenomena of which love and music are the two strongest, which suggests that human beings are very much more than collections of meat. They convince me that we are spiritual beings and that the religion of the incarnation, asserting that God made humanity in his image and continually restores humanity in his image, is simply true. As a working blueprint for life, as a template against which to measure experience, it fits. He also writes, I was drawn over and over again to the disconcerting recognition 
that of very many of the people I had most admired and loved, either in life or in books, had been believers. Watching a whole cluster of friends and my own mother die over a quite short span of time convinced me that purely materialist explanations for our mysterious existence simply won't do on an intellectual level. Ian Wilson, right? So, so he, he dabbled in, and he pursued atheism for, for many, many years, and he came to realize that that did not satisfy him at his deepest core. Now, again, he's just one guy, and I know others, it is satisfying, and it works for them. For some people, a purely material explanation about reality and about life is enough. Um, and I know that, uh, I mean, I know that evolutionary neurobiologists will tell me that, you know, the search for meaning that you have, you know, it's a disease that you have, or it's a, not a disease, they wouldn't say, they would say, it's simply a matter of genes that's working to preserve or to advance the genetic material of the human species, right? That that somehow uh, enhances the chance that our genes get um, passed down. Um, I'm making up the need for an ultimate meaning, like everyone else is making up meaning for whatever lives uh, that they have. But for me, you know, that's, that argument doesn't work for me because how else would God do it? Of course God is going to use, you know, my mind and the, and the material things of this world, right, within the confines of the body and, and the workings of the mind to plant the seeds of seeking him. I mean, how, there, I don't see another way that God could have uh, orchestrated that. Um, the search for meaning, again, this is not proof. But for me, this story is the one that makes most sense to me. You know, I, I haven't studied every philosophy. I haven't looked at every religion, you know, deeply. Uh, so I, I have to say this with some level of, you know, humility because I, I don't know everything, obviously, right? But based on what I've, what I've thought about and what I've been able to think about and to, to, to study, uh, and what I feel and sense points to, for me, it points me to the scriptures and the story, this, this historical redemptive narrative that we find in the scriptures, the story of the fall and the story of God's redeeming humanity, that's the one that just, it just makes the most sense to me. And the law is what points me into that direction, right? Because as I live, as I think about, well, how can I get along with people? How do I deal with the struggles in my life? And is there some, some greater purpose for than just, just living? The questions that the law raises, it doesn't give me power, but it points me toward the power that is able to help me figure all that out. And for me, that comes from the scriptures. And in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that for me is what makes sense of all of this. That, for me, is the good news. That we are not just wandering around aimlessly in a vast and endless and ultimately meaningless ocean. We can and we must pursue fellowship, peace, and justice in the world. We can and we must pursue discipleship, integrity, and wholeness within ourselves. But we do that because we have a larger purpose. Because we have a hope. Because we have a destination. 
We pursue worship and the glory of God in Jesus Christ because in faith and in the waters of baptism, we have been made anew. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we don't want to throw out the law. We know that it is a gift that you have given to your people, that it can continue to serve as a guide, uh, not just for um, civic society, but as a way of guiding us in our own living, in our own discipleship. But God, we also know that it is not what gives us life, that it merely points us toward our own sin, toward our our own brokenness, and that it leads us to your solution, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is to him that we look for our salvation, not to the law. So Lord, help us to know, help us to trust what you have done for us and who you are. And that in the life of Jesus, we also have life and life eternal. We thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, At this time, we want to um, receive into membership uh, of this congregation, uh, those who've made a commitment who've made a decision to follow our Lord Jesus Christ and to 